This episode of How I Got This Gig is brought to you by CanadaVideoCompanies.ca, the easiest way to find a top-rated film and video production company near you. If you need a video produced for your business, and believe me, every business does, then you're going to need a professional production company to produce that video, and the best way to find a professional production company is to visit CanadaVideoCompanies.ca. Okay, it's episode 10 of How I Got This Gig, and in this episode, I chat with creative director and director of photography, Andrew Clark. Andrew is an old friend of mine, a fantastic cameraman, and now an excellent creative director. And during our conversation, we talk about the importance of having a good fixer with you on your shoot, uh, how to prepare for a great interview, and we discuss the two types of cameramen in the world. Okay, let's start the show. Hello, I'm Dean Rainey, and welcome to How I Got This Gig. You know, I'm really excited about our guest this week. It's Andrew Clark, and we go way back, way back to my time working at CNN in Asia. And then later, we would work together on a couple of commercials together in Chengdu, China, where Andrew was my director of photography. He's a real pro and a blast to work with. And and I think back to that time in Chengdu uh, when we were shooting there, on location, and my main memories of that shoot in China are eating a lot of those really, really spicy Sichuan peppercorns. Have you ever tried those? They're like anesthetic or something. Like they they numb your lips. They're they're so hot. It's kind of like dental freezing or something. And then I also fondly remember from that shoot at our rap party where. Andrew got up with the band and and sang Guns N' Roses' Sweet Child of Mine with the Chinese house band at this club that we were having our rap party with. You know, a couple of whiskeys will do that to you. And then, of course, I really, really remember when we were attacked by pandas. Yes, attacked by pandas. You know, working in China, it's a complex, strange, mysterious land. And one of the things the client wanted to show in the commercial... It was a tourism spot for Chengdu, actually, which is a, a wonderful city up there in uh, northwestern China. And they wanted to show the pandas because they had a really world-class panda sanctuary there. And, you know, when you deal with China, it's in the Chinese people in China, it's not very straightforward. There is a lot of pomp and circumstances and bureaucracy and red tape and tradition and ceremony And what I remember is that we had to have, Andrew and I had to have a two-hour tea meeting with the manager of the Panda Sanctuary. He wanted to talk to us because we were there filming kind of on behalf of the National Geographic Channel. And he wanted us to know all he'd done for the pandas. And this tea meeting, it was fully in Mandarin, which I, I do not understand Mandarin, and neither does Andrew. And so all we could do was sip tea and nod for two hours. And so our fixer handled most of the conversation. And I do want to point out that no one during that two and a half hour conversation, no one mentioned that if we went into the panda pen, that maybe the pandas would want to have their way with us and our very expensive film equipment. No one said anything, nothing, not even a little heads up like, hey, you know, watch out. They're very curious. No, nothing, nada. They were more concerned that we were dressed up, uh, like in medical gowns and gloves and hairnets to protect the pandas from us. Okay. But that's not what happened. The attack did happen. It was horrific and hilarious. And I have the video evidence to prove it, and I've put it down in the show notes for this episode. So check that out. You know, it's currently my greatest viral video, something like 300,000 views on YouTube for it. Still gets the odd, ridiculous comment on it. Um, No pandas or production people were hurt in the filming of that video. But Andrew and I, we have a blast when we're working together. That's that was still one of my favorite shoots. The whole thing was was great. It was a real blast. And so now, many years later, 
Andrew has a lot of experience working in China. And during our chat, he shares a bit on what it's like to work in China and try to do business there. He also shares many stories from his time working as an international news cameraman and editor in dangerous places like East Timor, Pakistan, and Los Angeles. And stick around to the end because he gives excellent advice on exactly what you can do to prepare your guest or interviewee for a great interview. These are really solid, actionable tips. You're going to jot these down and use them when you do your next interview for your client or if you're working on a documentary or anything like that. It's gold. This episode of How I Got This Gig is brought to you by AsiaWorks, Asia's leading agency for creative video content production and digital strategy. You know, I've done quite a lot of work with AsiaWorks, and they really are top shelf. I've filmed in many, many different countries in Asia with the AsiaWorks team providing production support, and they've always delivered. They are true professionals, and when you are off shooting in a foreign land, trust me, you want true professionals with you. To learn more about AsiaWorks, visit them at asiaworks.com. Okay, this interview is a juicy one, so I want to get right into it. It's uh, my chat with creative director and director of photography, Andrew Clark. He has a lovely voice, a lovely, lovely voice with a lovely British accent, and he's a wonderful storyteller. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. I'm recording. Rolling. Take two here. <laughs> okay, take two. <laughs> so, uh, it's good to have you. Good to see you. It's been a while. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a long time. It's been a really long time. And um, I think what you're doing is fantastic. I really like the, the podcast with the YouTube guy. Wasn't that something? <laughs> was like. I mean, he's like 19 years old. He speaks with so much authority. He really, really is focused. He knows what he's doing. He seems to, and like he really pulled back the curtain for me as to understanding YouTube as a platform. Like, because I yeah. was just kind of approaching it as well, we'll make the same kind of videos or content, but we'll just put it on YouTube. And yeah. talking to him, it's kind of like, no, no, you, you got to have some different elements in it. You've got to change it up. There's got to be some rawness totally. to it or stuff like that. So, totally, totally. I mean, you know, yeah, it's a very, very, very fresh perspective. Lot to learn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm looking here, and it says you're the director of content and strategy at AsiaWorks. What exactly does that title mean? I think that it's, uh, you know, a lot of titles, <laughs> they don't necessarily mean very much. And it, 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 was, it was quite hard for me to use that title because I, I guess I'm kind of against, you know, sort of trumped up titles. But it seems that these days it's quite important to... Um, create the right kind of message to the potential clients that, um, you know, are potentially going to come your way in the future. I mean, there's a lot of change in the business. Um, and there's a lot of things that I'm sure you can relate to, you know, people like us, see these sort of withering dinosaurs that used <laughs> to be in television, which is a bad word, and are now in sort of video or digital video, but fundamentally digital video communication, um, we need to create um, value for ourselves. Um, and I think that with a title like that, it kind of talks to what I can do beyond just being a producer or just being a director or just being a cameraman, just being the kind of master of none that you've been talking about, <laughs> you know, with some of your other guests on the podcast. Right. So that means beyond just the production, it means the, 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 the maybe coming up with creative concepts and then helping to what roll it out and figuring out what platforms are suitable for it. Does it go into that or? Absolutely. It's about being able to sit down with a client and have a grown up conversation with them. <laughs> it's being able to sit down and rather than just being um, the video guy or the guy that's going to go off and get their camera out and shoot something for somebody, it's being able to sit down and like I say, have a grown up conversation, be able to have a discussion beyond just making a video for somebody. Um, the idea is that you're trying to work more towards building longer term relationships with clients, fundamentally trying to get the client to trust you. Right. Um, and when that client trusts you, then they are 
in a position and you are in a position where you can really, rather than just making stuff for them, you, you're sort of advising them, you're consulting them, you're partnering with them, you're working together rather than just being in that very sort of cutthroat vendor-client relationship. I can completely relate to that. Oftentimes I'm introduced as, oh, this is Dean Rainey, videographer. And yeah. I just don't think that captures what we do exactly, right? Um, yeah. Once they find out that, you know, I have a producing background and they understand what that means, then they know that, yeah, exactly what you said, that, you know, I can advise them starting in the conceptual, conceptual stage and script writing and all of that. I bring more than just uh, showing up on the day and putting a camera on a tripod and making sure they're in focus. And I think that it's also beyond that as well, you know, as we have kind of grown old in the industry we've built up a network of friends a network of our own vendors if you like partners people that we work with so you know we can lend our talents to all sorts of different types of video i think and i think that ultimately when it comes down to work you, you always want to be working with your friends you want to be working with the people right. that you trust and that you really respect for what they do so well we work together yes We've worked together, you in the capacity of uh, DP or cameraman, yep. and me directing, and uh, that was a lot of fun. The first time I ever met you, or not met you, but heard you, was when I was working at CNN, and they were doing a, a week of live shows from Singapore. And That's right. And there was a remote director on the other end that we didn't see, but we always heard, and he just had a lovely voice coming over <laughs> the intercom. That I was just, oh my gosh, this is this is so hard to communicate because I was just in love with the voice. It's like, <laughs> and then to turn out to work together uh, a couple of years later and finally meet you in person and meet the face. I think it was yeah. Voice. I'm trying to think when the Singapore thing was. It would have been like, well, it was. It's good more than ten years ago. Yeah. And then we did that. And then we did that shoot in Chengdu. We did. That was a blast. Where we got attacked by pandas. Now I just checked. And the video of that on yeah, YouTube, yeah. it has over 300,000 views. You're joking. No. And Seriously. Every once in a while, I get some absurd comment on it, like, leave them alone, or the pandas are <laughs> like people taking it really serious um, that we were really being attacked. Uh. <laughs> that was one of the anyway. funniest moments of my career. That was so <laughs> funny. And random and typical and strange. And, and I remember, I think the, the best thing about it is the, the sound. It, it's what you say. Yes. <laughs> You're like, get, get the thing and put the thing in the thing. And then we ran in and locked ourselves into the, the holding pen that was there or something. It was, but we were laughing at the yeah, same time. Yeah, we were laughing at the same time. I think that the, the lesson from that is never, um, never film with adolescent pandas. Yes, because they're actually quite feisty. Like everybody thinks pandas just kind of sit around and that's what we thought, eat bamboo all day. But as soon as we stepped in that pen, they came right for us, climbing your tripod. Going for the map box. And they were strong. Oh yeah, they were strong. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, so you started in news. Yeah, yes correct, I did. Um, so I, when I was at university, I, I studied uh, media studies, uh, which I guess in North America is like called um, mass communication so I, I got a degree in that, but I also studied music. I did kind of two degrees. So I did a music degree and a, and a media studies degree to try and kind of cover all the bases because I, I was really into music and I played the cello. And for the first couple of years at university, I studied in a conservatory in London in the Guildhall School of Music and Drama. And I studied with this kind of crazy hardcore cello player from Russia who actually wrote all of the um, books that I studied, the theory books that I studied as a kid. Um, so you were serious? I, I, you know what? You were, you were pretty good? You know what? I, I thought, I think a career path that I was considering when I went to university was maybe, maybe really getting into music and doing it professionally, whether it be as a composer or as a player. Because I also played play the drums as well. So, so... You know, I was in lots of bands all the way through university and played in bands after university as well. But uh, now I'm on now. Now I'm in uh, now I'm in video. So, you know, music was the thing that I really wanted to do, uh, and media studies was the kind of backstop that you know maybe I could go out and get more of a proper job rather than being a musician. But by the time I left university, I'd kind of given up on studying the cello seriously, and I was really really into playing the drums and 
kind of interested in getting into TV. That was that was the thing that I kind of got the bug from at university. There was a really great um, on the technical kind of practical side. We had this uh, really lovely old uh, guy who used to work for the BBC and who'd always start the lessons. You know, by saying, when I was at the BBC, we used to, you know, he'd tell us this story about like, you know, when you, when you use a shotgun mic and you put the, the fluffy wind protector on it, he would say, when we were at the BBC, we used to call it a (laughs) Dougal, which is really only a joke that you'd get in the UK because there was a children's TV show, which was called the magic roundabout and the main character one of the main characters was this fluffy dog called Dougal so he'd always make jokes like that really strange jokes like that but I mean he was great and he really gave me the we we produced little films I really got into the technical side I really liked the idea of editing and camera work so when I left university like a lot of people do I got a job in the local cable television news station and it was a internship the, the, it, it was called Live TV, and they had all these funny little gimmicks, one, one of which was the News Bunny, which was basically the intern dressed up as a bunny dancing in the background whilst they read the news. Because, they, you know, really? it was like cable TV. It was really kind of like, just like bizarre cable TV. They had a woman reading the news playing the cello, naked. <laughs> did you join her as her as a backup cello player no 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 she was she was in like the kind of mothership station we were in the we were in one of the city stations is it kind of like community access cable when you say it that was, then i would say it was a little bit little bit above community access uh tv it was very sort of it was community driven but everybody that was working there was working on a professional capacity and live tv was kind of quite a the 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 network was called live tv and it was quite a pioneering network back in the day because you know they i think it was the only network that had kind of like sort of these little cable stations in cities around the uk um and it was only on cable tv so it was very niche Mm. um so I ended up getting was a job. Was it live? It was live, yeah. So we had, like, during the day, we would do live inserts into the main network feed, right? So the national network feed, you know, on the hour, every hour, from the hours of, like, 7 in the morning through until, like, 7 or 8 o'clock at night, we would go in on the top of the hour live and produce a half-hour live news show. And we had, I mean, it was a really great learning environment because we had, really at the time, it was state-of-the-art stuff. So it was like we had, you know... It was Beta Cam SP, but we had one of the first generations of news cutter, Avid news cutter in there. So I learned how to edit on Avid. Right. Part of the training was that you weren't trained in a specific um, tech, because I went on the technical side, right? So I, I, my official job title was, uh, was it multi-skilled technician? So I could shoot. <laughs> I learned how to shoot. I learned how to edit on Avid. And I learned how to direct in a transmission gallery. So I learned how to cut cameras you know, how to direct studio, how to do live programming from a transmission gallery. But that was quite manual. You know, we'd have tapes and we'd be we'd be queuing them up in big machines and then putting them out live over a vision mixer. And like, you know, a bit like what you would just, you know, like when you're at CNN, you know, you've got an edit coming in at the last minute and you crash it in live into the feed. All of that the old hot roll. Yeah. Yeah. The old hot roll. That's it. So, yeah. Was it an easy decision to make that choice between the technical side and the producing creative side? I was really much more taken by the technical side. Yeah. That that kind of geeky side of me, being able to operate a camera, play around with stuff with shiny light, lighting up buttons and stuff like that, definitely. And the the creative side to it was uh, once, you know, once you learn how to use all of that stuff, then you can do really amazing stuff with it. You've been in live television then for a long time. Or you have quite a bit of experience with it. Yeah, well, I did. Um, so after I after I finished work in the in the UK, I was quite sort of frustrated. I mean, I, as a kid, I'd grown up overseas. I kind of I grew up in Australia and in Hong Kong, and I really wanted to get out. And you know, work, I really wanted to work in Hong Kong. I wanted to move back to Hong Kong. Why? Simply because I'd kind of grown up there for a while. Um, because I was fascinated by Asia, yeah. Um, because I had some friends over there, 
um, that I grew up with, that I was keen to see. Um, my father still lived there when I when I'd left um, university and had got my first job. So I, I was just looking for an opportunity quite within a couple of years of working with live TV to get to move back out to Asia. And, and also I was thinking about my future in sort of network television, you know, it probably would have been as a cameraman standing outside a courthouse filming, you know, murderers and rapists walk past all day. And I wasn't really into that or filming, you know, filming the weather in remote locations. And I, I, I've always been interested in journalism and I, and I wanted, I really wanted to become a journalist. Um, and, you know, hopefully get an opportunity as a cameraman to work in television news um, on foreign news. So I was really keen to move to Hong Kong. And I met a really great guy out in Hong Kong who put me in the direction of somebody else in Singapore. And I ended up getting a job in Singapore as a cameraman and editor. Um, and my first boss in Singapore was uh, like, he was a really hard taskmaster. He was, he was this guy who'd worked for the BBC for many years he was this kind of brash Australian cameraman editor. And he was like, mate, when you get here, mate, I'm going to fling you in the deep end and you're either sinking or swimming. Um, and yeah, I mean, I ended up suddenly shooting and editing local news to sort of go to places like East Timor to cover the referendum and going to the Southern Philippines to cover stories about kidnapping by the Abu Sayyaf and stuff like that. And you went from live TV, that internship, did they bring you on staff yeah. and then you were there a little bit and then you moved on or how did that? Yeah, yeah, pretty much that. So I started off as the intern, then I got a job for a, for a couple of years and then I got this opportunity in Singapore. And if I'm honest with you, I certainly wasn't experienced enough when I turned up in Singapore. Really? To do the job that I w that I'd been offered, but my goodness me, in the course of literally about 6 to 8 months, I learned so much. Why do you think he took a chance on you? I don't think that he potentially would have taken a chance on me because of any experience that I had in actually doing that job. I mean, I could operate a camera, right? Yeah. Um and 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 I could operate a non-linear I mean, I couldn't edit tape to tape, and everybody was editing tape to tape when I arrived in Singapore. You couldn't? I was using, yeah, I, I was using Avid. So I knew how to digitize a tape and sit in front of a computer screen and edit on a timeline. I didn't know what linear editing was. People used to talk about it in my, in my first job in television, you know, as if, you know, like it was this thing that people used to do, editing tape to tape. And I remember having an interview with the BBC once where they gave me two tape decks and a test to see if I could edit. And I was all over the place. But there I was suddenly in Singapore and I had to learn very quickly how to edit tape to tape with two PVW 2800s together. Oh, yeah. Um, and then travel with that stuff, you know, travel with two massive tape decks and turn up in like Jakarta and go and stay in a hotel and set up an edit suite in a hotel room and put towels all over a bathroom so that you can turn it into a voiceover booth or have your journalist or correspondent hide under the sheets and record the voiceover onto a microphone under the sheets in a hotel bed. I've done that. Whilst you're sitting there, yeah, whilst you're sitting there cutting away in a hotel room, maybe if you were lucky, you had the little adapters so you could plug your video feed from your master deck into the big TV in the in, in in the room, so everybody could watch it on the big TV. So it's quite 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 primitive, but that's how we used to do it. <laughs> yeah, because news couldn't really make the transition to non-linear as early as everybody else, because there is just you know you had to digitize things. It, it took render time, yeah. and if a piece needed to be out, the fastest way was to do tape to tape. And and it and it is really fast. It still remains a really fast way to edit. Um, although now you don't have to digitize tapes anymore. That whole section of the putting the footage in there is kind of taken out, so it's, it's a bit faster. But, I mean, also, you know, sending material back then, you know, there's no such thing as S FTP. Right. The internet wasn't properly invented. Mobile phones were still a relative luxury. Were you sending stuff by satellite? Yeah, it was all by satellite. So that, that meant that either you were turning up you know, on the outskirts of town to this kind of telecoms bureau in a foreign country where nobody spoke English and holding a Betacam tape going, hello, can we, can we feed this? <laughs> what was it like working there in those, in those days? I mean, 
people are traveling the world more now. There are what we call foreigners or what they call foreigners there all the time now, I think. International broadcasters are all over the world. But you were there, I guess, late 90s is what I would put that time point at. That's right. That's right. 98, 99 was when I got started in this part of the world. Um, what, were the, what was it like back in those days? Well, it was a lot of fun <laughs> because um, working to news cycles meant that, you know, when it was really busy, it was really busy. But when it wasn't very busy, then you then you had, you know, quite a lot of uh, sort of downtown. But uh, back then, it was a kind of much smaller group of people, I think. Um, it was a very, you know, you would always see the same pl- faces wherever you went. Yeah the the networks were very defined people weren't working to a kind of not everybody most people were not working to the kind of hungry 24 hour a day news cycle um pe- most people were working to national bulletins so if you were working for the british broadcasters then you'd be working to a 6 p.m or a 9 p.m bulletin so you'd be producing one story right every day and that gave you the opportunity to go out and actually shoot a really nice story. And the whole idea of sending stuff via satellite or doing live reports, first of all, it was prohibitively expensive. Satellite times, really, really expensive. So back then, you know, there were, you know, you would set up live positions and there would be a certain amount of reporters like they are today chained to a live position all day and sort of going i don't know what's going on because i haven't seen anything (laughs) but i'm going to stand here and talk to you because you can see a monument of the place where i am in the background that says that we're here right you know it wasn't it wasn't um it wasn't completely like that back then it was more like you know you'd get up very early in the morning you'd go off you'd cover a story that complemented the main news of the day. So you might go out and tell a first-person story about somebody. Um, in the case of when I started going there, it was the going to Indonesia. It was the first time that they had held presidential elections after the downfall of Suharto. And, you know, we went out to cover the election process, which is fascinating. We were telling first-person stories of people who were voting for the first time properly in a democratic election for a long time. And that kind of stuff was really fantastic. And we had a little bit more time to be to be creative, if you like, in the field compared to perhaps what it's like today. We had a little bit more time in terms of producing stories. So we weren't producing stories that were maybe always like a minute or a minute and a half. You know, a lot of the stories that we produced were maybe two and a half minutes, which is quite long right. in, in news time. But for a national bulletin back then in the late 90s, that was kind of... You know, they would get get over and done with the headlines on the top of the show, and then in the middle of the show, they would they would have longer, more reflective pieces about what was going on around the world. So that's I mean that was that was a lot of the work that I was doing when I arrived in Singapore. But also, the world of live television was really coming up in terms of foreign news as well. And actually, what ended up happening was I went from shooting lots of stories to becoming a slave at a live position. Oh. For a lot of stories. So especially like sort of post-September 11th, I was in London when when it happened. And I think it was a matter of sort of 24 hours before I was on a flight to Pakistan. And when I arrived in Pakistan, I wasn't there to, I wasn't there to go off with a reporter and tell, tell stories about what was going on. I mean, we couldn't get into Afghanistan because the surge was towards Afghanistan after September 11th. And... What happened to me was I ended up in the Marriott Hotel in Islamabad, chained to a live position on the roof of the hotel with loads and loads of journalists from all over the world, you know, one after another, like in a bus station. And one guy would come up, do his live bit, then the next person would come up, then the next person would come up, then it was just like all slotted in, all day and all night for like two months. Seriously? That long? Yeah, it was sort of two months that we were there. Then at the end of the year... My wife gave me, well, she was my girlfriend at the time. She gave me an ultimatum. She said, you have to come back. Otherwise, that's it. So I decided to come back. (laughs) (laughs) Did you have to 
quit your job or just you were able to get away from that post? Well, at that time, I was a freelancer, so I was able to get away from the post. But I was really frustrated because people were beginning to, by the time I left, people were beginning to get into Afghanistan. And that was the real prize. That's what I really wanted to do. But I decided to do the right thing and go back, which I think is a much better decision. In the long run, yeah. You've done well. Yeah, absolutely. So news <laughs> seems to have changed since 2001 with what you're talking about is just this constant feeding of the beast with these live shots and just an anchor just saying whatever, I guess, research he's done and whatever he's heard on the ground, but then opinionating and all that. I found that those stories, like those packages, the two-minute, the two, three-minute packages, they kind of gave more context to what was going on. Uh, yeah. Now we seem to have lost that. I think that I think that the deeper dive now comes through, you know, analysts, right? Um, and it comes through people uh, speculating about it in in sort of uh, endless conversation, if that makes sense, um, on you know on live on live uh, TV. Um, and I think that that you know there's there's a certain amount of uh, credence in that type of way of doing journalism, but. You know, if you want to be very cynical about it, it, it serves the purpose of filling airtime, yeah. um, which the majority of 24-hour-a-day news stations need to do. But, I mean, when I, when I finished uh, doing that story after, two, after September 11th in Pakistan, I ended up get, getting picked up by CNN and working with them full-time. We found ourselves on a story in Southeast Asia which was not high on the news agenda. It was the kind of lesser story about September 11th in terms of the roots of where the plan came from. And the reporter that I was working with, she, she was given access to lots of classified information. So actually, rather than us doing all of that live stuff, we ended up doing lots of stories that were about the background so we were actually making real stories but we didn't have any footage because all of the stuff that we were reporting on was from these classified documents all we had was like photocopies of these classified documents which we couldn't show so what did you use for well your so this was the early days of um it was the early days of uh laptops running final cut pro and i'd really got my hands on I got my hands onto one of these laptops and it's it's a typical thing in news broadcasts especially with CNN you know that every so often they would send out equipment to the to the bureaus and the bureaus just ended up not using it because they were they were so siloed into using tape and tape was the the you know like what you were saying earlier it took a long time for news broadcasters to make that leap into digital so they had these computers lying around with final cut on them and I worked out a way of it was quite time-consuming, but basically getting out of Final Cut Pro onto a tape. Because we had no pictures and there was literally nothing to shoot, what I did was I was, like, building sets in hotel rooms because we were still on the road all the time. So I'd build these sets in hotel rooms. I'd put black, buy black cloth and put it up all over the hotel room and then, like, hang all of these photocopy documents and film them out of focus, like, sort of pan past them really slowly... And then Final Cut had quite a simple but really useful text tool in it. So when the journalist I was working for, a brilliant journalist, um, lady called Maria Ressa. Oh, yeah, Maria. Um, who's doing amazing things in the Philippines now with Rappler. Um, she, you know, in, her, her script would be like, you know, oh, um, and the document said. And then we would bring up the text from the document over these like kind of out of focus, pull focusing panning past all of these documents. Brilliant. So we had a lot of fun doing that. And it was one of those things where at first you're going, well, what, what can I do? You know, you've given me a script which, ha you know, we've shot no B-roll that's in relation to this script whatsoever. And, you, and, and, and what we need to do is we need to sort of create something that works. And we can't ask the head office to put graphics on their end because they kind of couldn't really do that as well. And if you ask them to do it, it's this big palaver and they need to get the graphics department involved. So right. we just did it ourselves. And they actually ended up taking it. They actually ended up quite liking it. So I did that for about two or three years with CNN. It's pretty standard that if you're a cameraman, you're also an editor in Absolutely. news, right? And, and a, lot of guys, a lot of guys are first and foremost editors before they become cameramen. Um, I mean, we've spoke, spoken about this before years ago, you know, like... It's the kind of the needs and the want of uh, making television. 
you know, you can have all of these ideas about what you want, but actually at the end of the day, it's about <laughs> what you need to make it work, right? Right. And so working in TV news is, is relatively efficient. I mean, you're not shooting specifically as you're going to edit it, but a lot of the time you're shooting to give yourself options of only what you need to make a sequence work. So you would go out and you would shoot a story in one day, typically? Yeah, typically. Typically in one day. And then maybe you might drop in some file footage for other parts of that story uh, that might be more generic um, to the to the story itself. So you would go out and you'd generally you'd shoot one story about somebody or you'd shoot an interview with somebody or a combination of that. And then you'd shoot uh, various sequences which would help you sort of... Um, tell the story and it's really it's really important in news especially in good news reporting that the uh, that the sequences that you're shooting tell a story um and you know there are different disciplines of creating news television news which go way 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 back in time right 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 back to you know the whole idea of filmmaking itself but like i used to work quite a lot with german um news uh, broadcasters and their way of making news was putting the pictures down first putting the sound down with the pictures and then the reporter would write to those pictures and lay his voice over on top of the pictures and then that would be the story really yeah so i did a story on illegal lo i did a few stories but i remember one story that i did was on illegal logging in indonesia um and this would have been this would have been sort of like 90, 99. And we went right out into the forests and spent a couple of days shooting a story out there. When we came back, me and the reporter sat down at the edit suite. And I, it was one of the first time I'd worked with him. And I was expecting him to give me a script so that I could edit to his script. And he was like, no, we shall sit here and we shall look at your pictures. And we shall edit your pictures. And then I shall make my voice to your pictures. <laughs> and I was like, wow, that's brilliant. I hope I've shot enough. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Panic begins to weigh in. And what, what were the results like working that way? I think it's, much, it's a much better way of working. There's a, there's a brilliant journalist that um, I've always really admired who now works for Channel 4 News in the UK. He used to work for the BBC, a guy called Matt Fry. And I always wanted to work with him. I always wanted to work with him uh, when he was in Asia. But I never got the chance. And then I got a job with the BBC and I moved to the US and he was working with the BBC in the US and we were doing the Michael Jackson trial. And, and I finally had my opportunity to work with him. But the way that he writes to pictures is just unbelievable. And he would be very much like you'd sit down to edit with him and he'd be like that German reporter I was talking about where he'd just want to watch everything that you'd shot. And he'd want for you and him to collaborate on putting together sequences of pictures and then he would write to those pictures. And I remember I, I did the verdict day with him and the other correspondent I was working with and there was this one shot, there was this one shot of Michael Jackson walking into the courthouse and we were, we were report we were, we were filing stories for the one o'clock news on the BBC and the 10 o'clock news on the BBC. On that night, actually, the 10 o'clock news on the BBC had more viewers. It was the highest rated 10 o'clock news ever on the BBC. It was higher than when the Berlin Wall came down, for example, in terms of viewers. For Michael Jackson's trial. For Michael Jackson's trial, yeah. And there was this shot of Jackson standing. I don't know if you remember the shot. He's standing at like the, the, the metal detector. And he kind of strikes a pose and then he walks through. And the reporter I was working with on the one o'clock news show, he wrote to that shot and he said, what was it? Um, Michael Jackson, thin, gaunt, white as a geisha. And then he kind of walks through the thing. And that, that's a really good line, right? <laughs> that's Cause, great. Because that's what, cause you, that's what Michael Jackson looked like at the trial. He was really kind of, he was this sort of broken figure by the end of the trial. And then Matt Fry wrote his line over the same line, the same shot, I mean, over the same shot he, he wrote that line, was, uh, and then the accused, poised between salvation and damnation. <laughs> I don't... <laughs> and yet, and, but it's the same shot, right? It's exactly yeah. the same shot, but it's two people writing in different ways over the shot. 
but that's you know but it's that's that's where you get the kind of magic of real storytelling in news i think do you think that's still alive and well in news i certainly think it's alive there are broadcasters who regularly um still try to create stories like that i mean al jazeera did a fantastic job of trying to tell stories in news they did. They really did. They had a good run there. Exactly. Behind the headlines and really like longer pieces, m- a much more sort of cinematographical approach to the way that they filmed. They hired such great guys. I mean, you know, they've got great cameramen, great editors, really great producers working with them in the field, especially in the field. Okay, so at this point, you're working for the BBC in L.A. What was that like? Uh, were you mostly doing entertainment stories? Yeah, I mean, it was a big mix. It was really eclectic. I mean, the, the, the Los Angeles Bureau for, for BBC News is... It basically covers the whole of the Western seaboard of the U.S. and uh, of, of, of North America and South America. So I went as far south as Mexico to cover stories about British cavers that got stuck down... Um, caves and had to be rescued and then it went as far north as um alaska into the arctic circle to to cover stories about global warming um so it's really eclectic and then obviously every year we had the oscars and the golden globes and the grammy awards and all of that kind of la la land hollywood stuff to cover as well which was, was great fun well it was great fun wasn't it? i mean you know i got to stand on the red carpet like the first year I was there, standing on the red carpet and filming at the Oscars. It was unbelievable. But, you know, after you do that once, <laughs> you've kind of been there, done that. I don't mean to sound too arrogant about it because, it, it, you know, it's pretty amazing, amazing to be able to stand on a red sure. carpet. But, you know, they're not that glamorous, those, those types. You want, to be, you want to be on the red carpet, not standing going, hey, hey, BBC, give us an interview. <laughs> <laughs> now, because it was the BBC, did every story kind of have to have a, a slant to the UK? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the majority of the stories that, I mean, it depend, it really depended who you were actually really the answer to that is it depended who you were filing for. So you've got BBC World News, which we can all watch around the world. You've got the kind of domestic BBC. So it depended who we were filing for. And again, you know, because we were still really primarily filing for domestic news bulletins, the one o'clock news, the six o'clock news and the 10 o'clock news, each of those bulletins have different audience groups that are looking for different things. So the one o'clock news is much more local British. So you're always looking for a British art, you know, slant on the stories. Whereas the six o'clock and the 10 o'clock have much more kind of uh, world news and higher aspirations to them. Does that mean you're filing two packages a day? So some days, maybe only the 10 o'clock news might be interested in a story, or some days, maybe the 1 o'clock news might only be interested in a story. But on those days where the 1, the 6, and the 10 wanted a story from you, then they would have to be different bespoke stories for those bulletins. Now, that could be as easy as going, well, let's take the beginning of the story and put it on the end, and take the end of the story and put it in the middle, and put the middle of the story at the beginning. And then put mm. a new piece to camera on at the end. Right. <laughs> but it could be a completely different story. Ah. It would all depend on who is on the other end of the phone in London. You know, hello, Andrew, this is Julian here from the <laughs> 10 o'clock news. Can we have a tight one thirty on Michael Jackson? <laughs> you know? Now, where did you go to after L.A.? So, after L.A., I was... It was actually my wife. She was really keen to go to Beijing and work on the Olympics because she's in sports. She's, you know, she's in TV too. So she's in sports broadcasting. Ah. And it just so happened when I was uh, talking to some good friends of mine who worked for a company called AsiaWorks that they were thinking about setting up an office in China. And so AsiaWorks picked me up and they said, right, well, move to Beijing and set up an office for us in Beijing. So that was 2000 and 2005, 2006 when that happened. And we lived there for about five years and then moved back to Singapore in... Yeah. Hold on. I don't want to skip okay. over Beijing. I do not want to skip over Beijing. So how do you go from being like a cameraman and editor 
to now setting up a bureau. So whilst I was working with the BBC in the US, I, I found myself just because of the way that the work is, you know, sort of kind of producing stuff a lot more and not not just playing the role of cameraman. And <clears throat> that was on a few stories that we were doing. And I also felt as though I needed another, I needed a new challenge, you know? And certainly the profile that I had in terms of sort of shooting and editing and producing kind of very much fit with the, with the people who founded the company that I work for now, AsiaWorks. And at that time, the company had an office in Bangkok, Jakarta and Singapore. And they really wanted to take advantage of what was going on up in Beijing uh, for the Olympics, simply because a lot of their clients were going, hey, man, the Olympics are coming up. Can you set up an office there so you can service us? Um, and right. I'd been a freelancer as well before through the various different stages of things that I'd done. So rather than going to China and maybe setting up as a, as a freelancer in China, I had the support of this company that put their faith in me <laughs> to, to go there and do it on a slightly larger scale. And that must have been a great help. I mean, they were fantastic. Because, I mean, I want you to share, I want you to share about the challenges of setting up a bureau in China. They do, you can't even get in the country if your passport says you're a journalist. That's very true. So, in advance, I mean, China's quite a hard place to operate in. Um, and especially back then, even though, you know, China was kind of opening up hey the olympics are coming you know we're opening up uh the borders we're making it making it easier for journalists to come in there was still a lot of bureaucracy a lot of stuff you had to do to you know just to get permission to come in and commit media you know because there's they're really commit sensitive media. yeah i mean they're really sensitive about foreign journalists and foreign media so this was a really long process i had to go to First of all, to the foreign ministry through the embassy in Singapore. And then I had to deal with the foreign ministry in Beijing. Needless to say, they didn't want anything to do with us. They're like, right. who, who the bleep are you guys? Yeah. And we've got enough of you foreign media people all over us at the moment trying to get in for the Olympics. So leave us alone. Perhaps you want to get in touch with another government ministry. And then oh. the go that government ministry said another government. But actually, we, were, we found ourselves able to communicate with these people. Eventually, the state administration of radio, film and television said, look, you guys are in a gray area, but we do have something that you can apply for. It's a kind of rep office status that will protect you if something nasty happens to you so if you're out filming something that's completely unsensitive like you're out doing a corporate video or you're interviewing somebody about something on the street and the authorities do descend on you first of all we don't want to know anything about it because we don't want to get into trouble but at least you can say to them that your company is under the state administration of radio, film, and television with this classification that we'll give you. And that should be okay for you guys. So that's what we did. Because you're so, a production services company? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we're not necessarily is, journalists. Exactly. And we were the first independent production company to get that status in China. Wow. Yeah. The other companies who had that were like NHK public broadcaster kbs korea public broadcaster media corp singapore and we're this tiny little like this tiny little production company you know <laughs> and they gave us that so that was pretty cool but i mean it didn't it didn't necessarily really help the cause very much um we still had to navigate very carefully and we still do to this day we have to navigate very carefully through uh the way that we operate in china you know, I think local knowledge in China is really, really important. Uh, you know, the people that you work with, uh, the people that you know up there who can advise you uh, is really, really important. Really important in China. Sometimes I find you're only as good as your fixer. I think that's, a, that's, a, that's, that's very true for, for almost everything, yeah. And especially operating in places which are sort of off the beaten track. Um, but... Yeah. You know, having a good fixer is is just so important. I mean the, the the two most important people on on any foreign news job or even more recently with some of the other types of shoots and things that I do it it's the fixer and the driver. Those are the two most important people there. Do you want to talk a little bit about a fixer? 
Um, yeah, so just explain. So a fixer is a, is somebody who makes the space possible for television or video to happen, right? Yeah. So they create the environment in which you can go in and get the shots that you need. Um, they also help to set up interviews with people. Fixers, good fixers, are generally very well connected, so um, they can get you interviews with important people that you wouldn't normally be able to get if you just did a Google search. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, and their local knowledge is generally, it, it's sacred because it's not just about getting permission to go in and shoot things. It, it's about being able to schedule it so you can get it done efficiently and quickly. It's about most of the best fixers that I've worked with, they're very unassuming, friendly people. It's not, it, it, it almost doesn't feel like work for them. And the, you know, generally, and you know this as well, you know, you make friends with a fixer on a shoot and they will remain a friend of yours for a very long time. And you can't wait. Absolutely. You can't wait to go back and see them again. Or if you're on holiday there, then you'll absolutely go and catch up with them. It's a, it, it, it's a very hard to find skill, isn't it, really? It really is. It really is. It, but they're just so important, uh, especially some of these countries. I mean, when we were working together, even shooting commercials, uh, they were so important. I mean, obviously, there's the language and the connections. It's really about the connections. And with video production, so many things change all the time in the moment. And having a fixer that can roll with it or provide solutions is just so incredibly necessary for getting your job done. That's right. That's absolutely right. And, and you know, I mean, I said also drivers. I mean, you know, drivers are so important in any shoot that you do. Um, where do you go to eat? Where, Where yeah. do you go to drink? I need this. Bring this. Exactly. <laughs> Run um, this across town. We need to stop here, jump out, because we've seen something. And we need you to come yeah. and pick us up in five minutes. Or maybe it might be ten minutes. Or maybe we might change our mind. Maybe it might be an hour. <laughs> you know? Um, and just getting in and out of buildings. Getting in and out of tight spots. You know, having a driver who can operate with security guards on doors. Can you know, who enthusiastic, you know, like helping you with your equipment and stuff like that, you know, like so important and a very hard to find skill. I mean, the the concept of of using an Uber to get around for a shoot. I mean, it's convenient because you can call one up on your phone, but, you know, it's a real nightmare. It's totally inefficient. So you're moving away from news. I know when we were working together, um, obviously that's commercials. Yes. And uh, you bring a, a different skill set with that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Did you enjoy it? Well, you I seem to have gone more in that direction. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think I started. I mean, I shot quite a lot of corporate videos, and I got quite creative with corporate videos. By the time I'd moved to China, and I'd shot a little bit of commercial stuff before, um, and quite a lot of documentary stuff as well. And then, and then it was basically through Berman, uh, Berman and Jason, who you've interviewed. Um, they called me in for a my kind of first real kind of vignette slash commercial shoot with them. And that was, yeah. you know, this little camera spot that we did for Sony. And I just applied what I did in news and documentary to that run and gun. We managed to get hold of a really cool camera, which I'd heard about. It was one of the first digi, I think it was the first digi beta camera that shot in a progressive mode, right? Right. I remember that one. Yeah. Didn't look like, yeah. Didn't look like video. Looked like film. It's a little bit softer yeah? in the image. Yes. Yeah. Yes. A little bit softer. Had that filmic texture to the images. And it had like, I, I, you know, I'd go on the internet and download little patches to set up the play around with the gamma. The inside gamma, it. I did an yes. HD, yeah, I did an HD camera course and learned all of these little film look tweaks that you could do to the camera. And, you know, what you saw was what you got. There was no grading or anything like that. You just no. went out with the camera, shot everything fully open at like <laughs> 1.9 on these, you know, like on a Canon J21 massive broadcast lens. And you shot right at the end of the lens so that everything was in focus, that you wanted to be in focus, and everything else was out of whack, yep, so it looked even yep. more film-like. That's a great hack for getting a little depth of field there. Yeah. That's right, minimal depth of field, and, and, and using a wide-angle lens so you can get big wide shots and 
going in really tight right into the subject and using the macro to focus on the subject when you're right in there fully wide so all of those little fun tricks that I picked up in news that I'd only occasionally use when I was shooting sequences in news I was able to apply that like all the time uh, when I was working with people like you working with Berman producing these kind of vignette commercial type things and that was an awful lot of fun yeah, and then the big, the next big change after that was when the 5Ds or the 7Ds came out. That's right, yeah. It's the 5D came out, and then that started becoming a bit of a kind of B camera on shoots, and then it ended up becoming the A camera on yeah. shoots. And then, you know, now we're in this kind of world of with cameras like the FS7, the C300 Mark II, which you can put prime lenses onto the front, which produce beautiful images. What camera are you using these days? Most of the time when I shoot, it's either an FS7 or a C300 Mark II. But I'm not shooting so much these days. That's the thing. You know, I'm kind of project manager managing. I'm creatively project managing. Or I'm writing or directing. Or, or more and more these days, I'm out finding the work, winning the work, getting the work in. Pitching. Pitching. Yeah, pitching. And do you enjoy that? It's almost it's almost as fun as um, as being a cameraman, because you know <laughs> being a cameraman is a little bit like being a salesman, because when you nail that shot, you get an amazing feeling. When you get like like you know, have we got it? We've got it. Let's move on. You know, when you when you've when you've got that shot you've yeah. got that sequence it gives you a nice warm feeling inside i mean it's a little bit like that being a salesman when you land that project when you convince that client when you fundamentally when you get that client to trust you that not only do you know what you're doing but that you can really bring something to a project that or you've really you know that you've sort of signed a deal that makes a lot of sense for everybody there's a lot of satisfaction out of doing that. I, I think that I was I was quite good at quite good at being a cameraman when I was a cameraman. I really and I still really really enjoy it. But um, it's a little bit like playing a musical instrument. You know, it's something that I enjoy going back to and doing it with the clients that I really want to work with, rather than feeling as though it's something I have to do every single day. Because right. I think that I'm more valuable in other areas, whether it be going out and selling, whether it be, be interacting directly with clients to try and help projects get, you know, there's other people out there who are better at me at shooting as well. So I don't feel as though I need to shoot every project. Um, and winning the work, you know, I'm running a business now, it's me and two other business partners. We've, we've got to, you know, we've got to keep the wheels churning. And just like you, you know, we hire people and our businesses are nothing without the people that um, that we hire and that we love going to work with every single day. And we've got to keep everybody busy. We've got to pay their salaries. Absolutely. I enjoy the creativity of building a business or making decisions or choices. I, I do love pitching, too. And to me, that's, a, a, that's storytelling, right? I'm in there and I'm just trying to write a story there for the client for their for their production and i and i enjoy that now is it tough for you to be on set uh and you see maybe your cameraman uh thrashing around a little bit or uh do you just let him go or do you do you mentor yeah i i try to mentor um when i'm on set though there is a moment sometimes yeah there is a moment where i might just like say for instance if we're doing a walking shot and I want the cameraman to shoot it at like two. And I want him to follow focus on a mid to close up shot as they walk towards the camera. Um, and if they can't do that, then I'll jump in and I'll do it for them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you give like, them a couple of tries, though. Yeah, I'll give them a couple of tries. And then, uh, and then I'll jump in and do it. <laughs> <laughs> so what advice would you have for someone who's looking to get into media? Obviously, you have been all over right news uh cameraman editor commercials documentaries and you know looking back at your career what would you if you knew something then that you know now what would it be i think it's maybe if i tell a story yes so i it's something that somebody told me 
quite early on in my career, and I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't quite get it, and it was about being a cameraman, right? And he said that there are two types of cameramen in this world. There are the operators, and there are the cameramen. The operators, they aren't necessarily very good cameramen. They don't shoot nice images all of the time. But they're lovely guys. They get on really well with people around them. And they operate. They go beyond. They kind of turn up. They get the goods. It's not always going to be pretty, but it's usable pictures that that helps you tell a story. But they operate beyond. They might be really good at doing sounds. They might be, they might be really good at dealing with an interviewee and making them feel at home. But they're operators. They operate really well. And then you have cameramen. Cameramen... They're like Oscar-winning actors. You never get the sense that an Oscar-winning actor really knows what he's doing. He's just amazing. Cameramen turn up and they shoot unbelievable, awesome pictures that maybe even them themselves don't even know how they've got, but they're just beautiful. They're beautifully framed, amazingly crafted images, real sort of cinematography. But they generally don't have a very nice personality. <laughs> They're generally quite hard to get on with, possibly diva-ish. So you've got these two types of people. And then there's a kind of third type, which everybody should really be striving to be, which is perfectly in the middle of that. You've got to be a great operator and you've got to be a great cameraman. And once you get the balance of those two things right, then you're set. You're totally set. And certainly for me, that's what I've always tried to do. I ha it hasn't just been about being an amazing cinematographer, you know, skilled in his art, or, you know, a really nice guy who gets the job done. It's been about trying to be the best of both of those worlds when I'm working with people. I think that's great advice, especially when you have to be on the road with these people, sometimes sharing hotel rooms. Absolutely. And you're under immense stress to get great images. That's right. That's absolutely right. I got another question here. It's a little out of order or context, but I just want to know, if, can you share a little bit with me of how, how can you set yourself up to do a good interview? You as the interviewer, you've done a lot of documentaries and news stuff. Yeah. What are some tips you can share for having a good interview? I think that um, interviews are not about um, questions. Interviews are about talking points. Um, and uh, we find uh, with the work, especially the work that I'm doing now, um, especially in the area of corporate marketing and branded communication, setting up the interview is really important. So you want to set up an interview with somebody where in advance of the interview, they need to be briefed as to what's going to happen on the day. A lot of people haven't done uh, interviews with video cameras before. So there's a lot of stuff that you take for granted in terms of setting up your camera, putting the lights up, that they just don't get and really intimidates them. Yeah. So being able to preempt that happening by having a, what we have is a standard briefing document that is not long. It's like two pages of a PDF. If that, if we can make it one page, then it's great. That just says, wear this, don't wear this, Speak in full sentences, use the question in your answer, and don't worry, it's not live. Yes. Okay? And then if there's a second page, the second page is questions and talking points. These are the questions that we want to ask, but really, don't prepare your answers. Yes. Perhaps here are some talking points that you might want to consider before we turn up. So when you turn up, if they're like super important and like a CEO or something like that. Hopefully the assistant's given it to them before you turn up. But, you know, hopefully they've read it, they understand it. Then when you turn up, it's really important before you start that interview to get to know them. So there's a particular moment when the crew is setting up where you can actually sit down. You can actually sit down before the interview starts. And the crew might move around and change the lighting, which they love because they're going to be tweaking it, but don't let it happen for any more than maybe 15 minutes or something like that if the conversation's going well, so that when the interview starts, they're ready. And then don't look at your notes when you're asking the questions. Rem do your preparation. Make sure that those talking points and those questions that you've written down and sent in advance are there for them. And there you go. You can have your interview. And if they say it wrong... Ask the question again. That's brilliant. That is brilliant. That is great advice. So what's uh, what's coming up for you? So I'm 
heading to Australia for a shoot with a luxury car company that we're making videos with at the moment. And that's really exciting. We're going to be shooting with really nice cars and drones and telling first person stories about car owners and stuff like that. Nice. Then um, I'm heading back up to China at the end of the month um, to spend a week with the team up there. Well, congratulations on all your success. I know you've worked hard for it. Uh, and you've really been a great resource for us when we've been putting productions together and that. Uh, and thanks for taking the time to speak with me here. You're very welcome. And exactly the same back to you. I really, really enjoyed our last collaboration together. And I hope that we can work together again. And clearly you've, uh, you've built a very successful business over there in Canada. It's just been a shame we haven't seen each other for such a long time. I know. Well, when I'm back over to Asia, which happens every three years... We'll, we'll reconnect. Let's do it. Okay, so I end every episode with a television film production term. Okay. And I throw it out to you, and you give me the definition. You're going to get this one. I think I'm like, what are, this is episode 10, I think, and I'm like uh, 9 and 1, which means only one guest has gotten one right. Oh, my goodness. So <laughs> this one is right up your alley, though. Uh, it's, a, it's a camera term, okay? Okay. The term is, and I'm looking for the definition, overcranking. Okay, so that comes from that comes from the old film days, right? When you're running film through the camera, right? Yep. So Bam. you would overcrank it, which meant that you would make the motor run faster. And the reason why you'd make the rotor run faster is because the film goes through the exposure quicker. So when you play it back at normal speed, what happens, Dean? It slows down. Woohoo! So that's overcranking. Well done, Andrew. Well done. And then undercranking is the opposite effect. I guess that speeds up when you play it back. It would yes. Be a, it would be a quick one. Yes. Hey, you're a winner. <laughs> I knew you would nail that one. <laughs> Phew. I was getting really scared about that bit, actually. <laughs> well, thanks again. This has been awesome. Great to reconnect with you. And the very same here, Dean. Thank you very much for, for having me on your show. Thank you. So there you have it. My conversation with Andrew Clark. Man, he dropped some golden nuggets of knowledge all over that interview and some great stories, too. If you know someone who might want to work in news or be a journalist, tell them to give that one a listen. That, that's where it's all at. That's a great place to start right there. Okay, that's it for the show this week. Thank you so much for listening. Please make sure you rate and review us. We really appreciate it. And give us a share if you see us on Facebook. I'll see you next time on How I Got This Gig. We'll be right back.